Hello, you're listening to the Real Politic podcast. We have the second instalment of our mammoth chat with Hugh Lemmy and Juliet Jakes for you. Oh, and that's great. It's going to be good. The, the first one has assumedly already been uploaded, um, and you've it already listened to it. will have gone down a storm. I'm sure you it loved will have it. been great. Everyone will have loved it. I'll be in prison for libel. <laughs> Pete, please help me. This is my phone call to you, my lawyer. <laughs> uh, you are listening to the Laura Jolian Tid legal fundraiser. <laughs> <laughs> We're hoping we can get more than Jennifer James's Kickstarter campaign, but you know, think, fingers crossed. <laughs> I don't know if our uh, if, if our support base is quite as you know coffee drinking, croissant munching, affluent as hers. Mm. But yeah, who have we got on? I've already said Hugh Lemmy and Juliet Jakes. Oh yeah, you did already say so. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, as a, as we said in a previous episode, we're doing these intros after a three and a half hour recording session. <laughs> we're just dead. Oh, I'm just dead. I'm, I'm back. My fa- I said I was going to stop eating the crisps. I'm just eating the crisps again. So I hope you can <laughs> like. I'm eating with my mouth full, but you can't I'm see it, so it's not up. rude, is it? My family are going to get annoyed at me for making noise at night. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) Here's the second part. Enjoy! Opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any dissent. We know who the hard left are in the you know ascendancy within the within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing. The hard left agenda: printing money, national without compensation, that sort of hard left-wing position. Hard sort of left, the hard left, to the hard left, the hard left, the hard left, the hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, the hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, 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 the 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 hard left, No, actually, I was just going to talk about the thing that tipped me over the edge with the statesman. Yeah, uh, that point at which it was like I can no longer be involved with this. And it was an article. I I remember this being published earlier, but it's actually dated February 2015. Um, and it's entitled "Are You Now or Have You Ever Been a Turf?" And of course, that's very deliberately referencing, you know, the McCarthy witch hunts. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and it starts off by talking about, um, you know, an open letter in the um, Observer, which I think I signed, actually. Um, oh, no, I signed a re- I signed a response to it. Uh, at this point, actually, I'd gotten rid of my smartphone and more or less quit Twitter and just instantly felt a lot healthier. Um, mm. And I remember I remember seeing this this article go online um, just as I was leaving to go to Manchester for a weekend. And I knew that it was going to be out the way it was going to play out. It was going to be absolutely horrendous. Um, and that's exactly how it turned out. And I knew there was going to be responses like this one, um, 
which you know includes the sort of things like oh, that's more or less unreadable actually um it's really hard to sort of pick out one bit of it. I mean, it basically sort of is, you know, a sort of scientific argument against the idea that trans women are women. Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so it sort of uses this kind of anti-McCarthyite language. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you know, it's the kind of thing that if you were to come to this knowing nothing of the discussion it probably wouldn't seem that reasonable, but you know, when you when you know the context in which it's being written and published, you know, is is just you know incredibly hostile. Um, but it's only when you get to the end of the piece, uh, and it's a long piece, but you get to the end, and it says that the name of the writer Terry McDonald is a pseudonym, and at mm-hmm. that moment, I got back to them and said, look, I've spent the last five years publishing a hell of a lot of um, very, very, uh, you know, intimate and difficult things about my own life that I can never get back, you know, in the name of, like, dealing with, like, media um, transphobia. Yeah. And, you know, because that was the only way in which editorial prejudices, you know, this idea that people only wanted to hear individual life narratives, that was the only way in which I could kind of bring the sort of perspectives and the sort of issues into my mainstream journalism um that was the only rubric under which I was allowed to do them and then you publish this piece that just sort of trashes an awful lot of uh you know attempts by trans people to organize um completely trashes our identities um etc 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 um and you only announce at the end that the writer is is using is using a name that they wouldn't normally write under um and you know it picks out a lot of like straw men uh you know representations of like trans activism mm. um you know i'm not going to go too far into it you know your readers can can your listeners can find it if they want to find it um but you know it really at that point i was like right i just i can't have any more of this and i just sort of quietly quietly sit down i didn't want to make like a big public gesture of it because you know i knew that a lot of the responses would just say yeah well look we told you so and it's like yeah i know people told me so and you know, I find this sort of assumption that, you know, just because a lot of people go into journalism not really being prepared to sort of self-criticise or think about the structures that they're working in, um, mm. everyone doesn't. I mean, again, this is this is another thing that I think liberal media gets very wrong. Like, there's this attitude that, oh, like, nobody wants to hear journalists talking about themselves and talking about their own industry. It looks self-indulgent. And yeah, I can see that argument, but... Like, I think if the last couple of years have shown us anything, it's that periods of self-reflection on the part of a lot of (laughs) liberal media would be quite welcome, actually. Yeah, a bit (laughs) of self-critique wouldn't go amiss. No, it really wouldn't. Or, you know, even some vague self-awareness in certain cases. (laughs) But, um, you know, at that point, I, I just sort of stood down. You know, I had made a lot of efforts in private to fix this conflict or de-escalate it, um, which just hadn't really worked. And at that point, you know... I couldn't see it working and I was completely burnt out. And of course, this was just before the, you know, the Labour leadership um, stuff came up. You know, that particularly depressing moment after the 2015 election when a lot of people in the Labour Party and a lot of people in like liberal journalism looked at the general election result and said, right, Labour's just lost an entire country to not even an anti-austerity movement, a normally quite conservative party tacking a little bit to the left on this issue. Yeah. Uh, and concluding that what Labour needed to do was move further to the right. Um, yeah. 
And then, you know, all the Corbyn stuff kind of happening. And I really wanted to write, you know, one reason why even then I was slightly reluctant to quit all of this stuff. Because I really wanted to write, you know, sort of what I think would have been, well, I hope fairly kind of calm and reasoned kind of discussions as to why a lot of young people and even people who weren't that young, you know, I was like well into my 30s by this point, backed the project. Uh, yeah. I just knew it would t- I would get like a tidal wave of abuse, often from people who used to be my colleagues, uh, you know, having had like an awful lot of implicit attacks, you know, on trans people generally, which, you know, obviously, you know, I mean, this isn't the point, but, you know, obviously kind of, you know, aimed at me as much as anyone. Um, and then I, you know, faced doing it all again. But, you know, I also found that one positive, I guess, was that I didn't need to because I could either spend ages kind of writing another very, very long piece trying to explicate this or Tony Blair could just write a piece saying Corbyn will destroy Labour and everyone was just like, yeah, vote Corbyn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, you kind of backed away from um, from political writing at this point, even though it was never your, your kind of main thing. Not really. But... Um... but you you but you do see parallels you say um between this kind of um th- th- this i guess like feral atmosphere on twitter in in 2014 and so yeah. on the great the great turf wars as you describe them <laughs> um, and and the current um dichotomy of Corbynistas versus centrists. Yeah, I mean, I just want to... The to current epoch. Read a little bit of um, a Joe Kennedy piece from the uh, the better NS. Oh, this is a brilliant piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called um, The Stuplime Object of Ideology. Yeah. And what Joe is picking out is um, this sort of tactic. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Um, where's the best bit to read? So, you know, he talks about, like, this sort of centrist, like, mobilising stupidity and sort of, you know, um, what he describes as a chain-linked deployment of bad faith remarks, which seem designed mm. to mobilise the left precisely because of its lack of desire to convince. So, you you know, you'll get a sort of, a you know, a, an attempt. I mean, we talked at the beginning about kind of discourse management. And one of the things Chomsky talks about is, you know, this idea of you astroturf the public discourse with something that you hope will become like receive wisdom. And yeah. you you allow people to answer to it, but you then portray the people arguing to it as inherently unreasonable or, you know, loony left or whatever. I think one of my favourite things ever on Twitter was um, was Ken Livingston making some sort of off colour remarks about mental health. And oh, Hugh, oh, yeah. Hugh just quoted them and said, like, oh, I can't believe Ken Livingston being so disrespectful about mental health. This is typical of the loony left. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, like Joe says, a routine, you know, trolling is stupline. It both demands response and maintains in its banali, contentless nature, a shit-eating unanswerability. The former <laughs> intensifies the latter, something particularly obvious if we look at the use of Twitter by anti-Corbinites. A routine became clear very quickly. Make an intellectually indefensible remark. Leave open the possibility of debate, but either refuse to reply to responses or reply with an extravagantly deliberate misunderstanding. After 12 hours or so, claim you're being targeted by trolls who are also invariably momentum thugs and retweet <laughs> sympathetic comments of your political allies as a kind of second wave of attack. I suppose the pop yep. psychological term for this approach is passive aggressive. <laughs> 
Um, that actually reminds me of another piece written by Joe Kennedy, which was mm. on his blog, A Drawing Sympathy. And this is a piece with the uh, quite brilliant title, Nonlinear Warfare. Yes. <laughs> so it, <laughs> this refers to uh, nonlinear warfare, which is a kind of uh, a technique of propaganda dissemination uh, pioneered by uh, Vladislav Surkov. Yeah, uh, who's one of sort of Putin's big spin doctors, mm. and and Adam Curtis has done a quite famous short film. I think it appeared on uh, one of Charlie Brooker's shows about Surkov, which is entertaining in a very Adam Curtisy kind yeah. of way. Yeah. Um. And uh, yeah, so Joe Kennedy in this piece, um, which I think is is a good even though it's written about a year before, it's a good companion to the one Juliet was citing. Um, he he talks about how much of what is happening around the Labour Party at the moment grinds one down to infuriated silence. This was written July the 13th, published July the 13th, 2013, uh, 2016. So this was during the coup when there was just this, you know, there were... You know, Paul Mason was the only mainstream pro-Corbyn journalist. Yeah. Like, uh, there were about, you know, even of the 40 MPs who gave Corbyn a vote of confidence in Parliament, most of them wouldn't even come out and say much in defence of him in public. Yeah. Um, he, he says, um, in fact, what I want to talk about here are the strategies for producing that inability to speak, that incapacitation, and perhaps those perhaps though strategy is to some extent a misnomer it's even possible that part of the strategy is to draw attempts to name it as such attempts which can then be dismissed as egregious conspiracy theorizing mm. the corbin easters dreaming up conspiracies behind their laptops yeah. the hard left caught in the ecstasy of their paranoia the trots twitching about the CIA, which is ironic because most of the trots active in the Labour Party are in the CIA. Um, <laughs> <laughs> prefab tropes, perhaps. And we can recognise them as such when they're framed as starkly as this, but there's a form of truth here. The expectation of some kind of simple uh, yet obscure causality which would produce a tidy explanation is naive in several ways. Ideology wants nothing less than for you to go looking for the individuals pulling the strings. And then there's one more paragraph I'll read. The whole thing's very good, but it would take up too much time. Um, <laughs> these are rhetorics not of deceit, but of cumulative irritation. Yes. Twitter gives us Corbyn supporters as momentum millionaires. I personally feel lucky just to be able to pay 25 quid to vote in the leadership election. <laughs> That's Joe's parenthesis, not me speaking. Um, a constant denial that Corbyn's support supporters live anywhere but Islington or Brighton. <laughs> exactly, some of us live in Surrey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, uh, Kingston, which is near Islington, yeah. <laughs> Fair cop there in this case. Yeah. Joe, I think, lives in Brighton, but no. clearly... <laughs> ridiculous more generally yeah. the soft anti-Corbyn concern trolling of the unelectable sort which now you, you don't really get much anymore no that's um, over for some reason isn't it <laughs> yeah, no idea why <laughs> pantomimic outrage at John McDonnell swearing oh I was at the rally where McDonnell called for coup plotters fucking useless that was, <laughs> that was a, a great night they've been plotting and conniving the only good thing about it as plotters, 
They're fucking useless. <laughs> Um, various celebrities talking over our heads. <coughs> J.K. Rowling, albeit <laughs> very and arguably unnecessarily visibly, about how the hard left are out of touch with real working class people. Take those for a small plate version of what's going on. For the main course, you could look at the systematic efforts to construct an image of Corbyn's support as misogynistic or anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. Or most, did they really do that of all? The erasure of the political specifics of the horrible, horrible murder of Joe Cox in an incredibly spurious show of being frightened by momentum thugs. And we're seeing that momentum thugs trope arise again with this uh, tussle at a Jacob Rees-Mogg event the other day. And the Haringey stuff. Yes, Haringey stuff well, yeah. No, absolutely. The Haringey stuff has been uh, a glaring example of non-linear warfare. Mm-hmm. This uh, this incredibly unpopular public-private partnership, the very idea of which is is ever more discredited in the wake of stuff like Carillion. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, yeah. yeah, and Capita as well. And um, it, it, it's opposed by everybody in the local area, from the SWP to the Lib Dems. Yeah. But Knowing, you know, listening to, uh, you know, just just, just sort of uh, looking at the media coverage of it, you'd think that this was this massively popular kind of scheme that um, that just a few kind of hard-left bullies with a personal vendetta against Claire Cober, who nobody in the country had heard of before she yeah. made herself a celebrity in the last week, um, you know, that it is just this kind of, like, bullying campaign that has no wider political connotations. And it does seem partially designed just to make the kind of people who would be angry um, at the people pushing the HDV scheme in Haringey for Haringey for political reasons, um, just kind of just furious. Yeah, I mean, just to, to backtrack a little bit, if that's okay, like Hugh, I know Hugh and I have talked before about... Um, how a lot of these, ta- I mean, I've obviously talked about how a lot of these tactics were rehearsed with sort of arguments about trans identities in 2014. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but Hugh, uh, Hugh and I were talking about sort of certain other parts of the LGBT press, which is really appalling. Um, and how these things were sort of rehearsed there. I mean, I have um, a fairly amusing anecdote about being headhunted by BuzzFeed LGBT in 2014 it was really at the point where i just didn't want to be around lgbt activism at all um but they they sort of wanted me to be their lgbt editor um i didn't know what they wanted they just asked you to meet up with them um my one regret is i didn't go to their office Uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's some like sci-fi shit well i mean i think it's probably it's like ping pong tables and uh you know, you know craft party. beer for free yeah yeah <laughs> let's just uh let's just find my um my description of it that i sent to a friend at the time um i mean they they started off by um you know they sort of asked me if i read the lgbt press and i just said no i never read it uh, I, said <laughs> hugh, I said that hugh was the only lgbt writer that i liked <laughs> pretty much um it was the only one that i liked kind of unconditionally there were some people that i liked bits of and i said that the lgbt press was just too like liberal and too gay and lesbian focused for me and that you know this sort of swanky like activism where 
you know, lots of people kind of congratulate themselves um, in swanky hotels in London. Um, and like Gok Wan is just at the bar, just looking very pleased with himself. Like, you know, I um, <laughs> can't really bring myself to be involved with a lot of that. Um, and, um, you know, so BuzzFeed did want me to write, you know, sort of features and, and stuff for them and articles um because you know they were sort of really really had a big thing about being taken more seriously at this sort of time uh but they said that you know you'd still have to do the sort of listicles and quizzes and stuff and you know i wasn't really sure how i would do that or who i would commission um i was trying to explain the sort of structural barriers to getting good non-mainstream lgbt writers because nobody can make a living out of that i couldn't you know Um, yeah and um you know, they were like, we'd have lots of money for commissions. I was like, no, that's that's not the point I'm trying to make. Um, you know, my point is that people have to have like full time jobs and write this stuff on the site. So they can't always just write stuff kind of, you know, that's topical and up to the moment. It's, it's really not easy. Yeah. Um, but I think my favourite bit of the interview was uh, kind of already at the point about halfway through where I decided I was just there for research purposes. And he just says, look, do you want me to, to tell you about what the office is like and I was like yeah sure fine and he just says it's a really upbeat and optimistic place and um I just thought like no you haven't read my stuff have you <laughs> <laughs> a really, really American style office apparently and um yeah. you know I already thought like no this isn't going to work and um in the end I said no um partly because I wanted to do it part-time and write around it and they said look you really work for us full-time and full-time would have not just meant being in the office nine to five, five days a week, but also, you know, spending all of my Sundays on Twitter, uh, which mm-hmm. at that point I didn't want to do anymore. I couldn't take any more of just people just being furious with each other all the time. Yeah, <laughs> but you did miss out on being able to put James Ball's stapler inside some jelly. I know, that would have been <laughs> wonderful. Um, you know, I'm sure he would have had his name written underneath it in Tipex and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I did also you know, miss out on, uh, I don't know, if somebody throwing one of my shoes over a pub or something during one of our uh, fun nights out. But, you know, I can't it would it, it would be even funnier if it was his jelly. So not only did you did you get his stapler covered in jelly, but you got his jelly covered in stapler. Stapler. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies. Probably would have been sat opposite Mr. Logic, but yeah. Um, you know, I, I got home and looked at the BuzzFeed website, and you know, obviously they, you know, their model isn't to have a homepage; it's to you know just people share links kind of directly. But I just went on BuzzFeed.com just to see what was on there, and the first thing I saw just said something like. 21 problems that only people with resting double chin will understand and (laughs) (laughs) was that time that Roy Keane phoned up Robbie Savage and got like Robbie Savage's answer phone going hi it's Robbie what's up and Roy Keane (laughs) saying I can't be fucking signing that (laughs) So, so I turned that down I mean you know one of the things I thought about was their sponsored content model um and a post they'd published a little while earlier uh which was sort of sponsored by the dclg entitled is your landlord actually incredible and i'm gonna get it up mm. <laughs> i mean as in oh, no, it's, it's not credible anymore <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's a typo or it may have expired and there's a cute yeah. cat in a buzzfeed t-shirt um so i turned them down and you know um ended up doing doing a phd instead so finally got back to doing that and really i'm a lot 
Um, but, what are you doing your PhD on? I'm doing a PhD in creative and critical writing. Um, oh, yeah. We'll see what comes out of it. But, um, Hugh, I think you probably had a bit more to say about some of the LGBT press and some of the sort of yeah sorry Hugh yeah I mean it's really it's really striking the LGBT press when you really think about um the sort of prevalence of these issues and trans issues especially I mean um they in in the sort of mainstream media at the moment I mean to be fair to people like Pink News they are um unequivocally uh pro trans I think um but just the, the quality of what comes out uh compared to the number of really interesting um, LGBT writers and the complete lack of crossover between the interesting LGBT writers and culture that's happening and the fact it just doesn't exist in the LGBT press, which is, um, like uh, Juliet said, like extremely L and G, mainly G, mm. and extreme, extremely white, which people are trying to address. But, uh, yeah, like the, the quality of it is is appalling when you look back to, you know, even... I mean, not look through things through rose-tinted spectacles, but to look back in the 80s and you had stuff like um, the Gay Left Collective and stuff. There is there is a strong left uh, LGBT sort of discourse out there that just isn't really represented. Yeah. And I think it, in microcosm, the way that it works is exactly how um, a, a lot of the sort of liberal left media work as well, which is um, a boys club, really. Um, you know, people... Who know people that go out in the same social scenes, they recruit from the same universities. Um, so you get this like extremely narrow sense of what LGBT culture is today, which is, you know, drag race gifts and um, yeah. and pride stuff. And the stuff that they were doing, they've been doing around pride, uh, I think three or four years ago, it was around whether UKIP should be allowed to march and then stuff to do with uh, uh, police. Uh, police uh, appearing at Pride and then the army mm. um, just being like relentlessly um, uh, reactionary like really impressively stupid and reactionary um, <laughs> and um, there was a piece last year I think by a uh, journalist who I'm actually not even going to mention his name because I don't want to give him the oxygen and publicity but also I give me a, give myself an aneurysm it makes me so angry <laughs> <laughs> Juliet will know exactly what I'm talking I about. Know. I'm actually looking at one of his pieces now, yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, uh, because, well, for, for a start, he, well, no, uh, I'll, I'll say what the piece was. The piece was saying the army should be allowed to march on pri at Pride because the army has always implicitly been pro-gay because... <clears throat> <clears throat> now, this is going to blow your mind. Because <laughs> gay people were imprisoned in concentration camps in... Uh, in uh, Nazi Germany, and the British <laughs> Army liberated the concentration camps. So did Stalin. Oh my god! <laughs> Is he from I mean... Actually, that's good. I am now. Whenever anybody says anything about Stalin, I'm now going to use. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. use that <laughs> logic to be like Stalin is very yeah. pro-gay. Caroline Duffy, Stalin is gay. As a, as a, as a, as a logical <laughs> argument, like. Even if, if if it were the case, it would be like an appalling collapse of logic. Obviously, like it doesn't mean that they're pro-gay, but the, yeah. it, it was. It, I find it genuinely offensive because after the war, um, the uh, both uh, the GDR and uh, federal federal republic um, refused to um, basically paragraph one seven five, which was the imperial era anti-gay legislation, um, because it came from 
it was the, the law was already on the books before the uh, Nazis took power in 33. Um, that was counted as a legitimate law. So the fact that these guys had been arrested for it by the Nazis wasn't seen as part of the Nazi regime. But yeah. So 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 basically, they they were judged as having been legitimately kept in prison. But yeah. because the Nazi regime was not regarded under international law as a legitimate regime, the time that they served in in the concentration camps wasn't counted against their sentence. So they had to serve that amount of time. Sometimes, you know, up to 15 years. They had to, well, not 15, uh, 13 years. They had to serve that time again. Because and the and the and the, and the occupation authorities uh, were were completely fine with that. So there were there were guys who who served like they're in, they they were they were in jailed before thirty three. They served that entire time in prison and they had to serve that time again. So it's just it's so offensive. Like it's yeah. it's it's a it's a complete misreading of history. It's it's incredibly sloppy journalism and it's so offensive to those those the memory of those people who suffered horrendously in concentration camps and were often persecuted by fellow inmates and to just yeah. cast it away as if oh the british army's always been pro-gay even with people in the in who are obviously still around today um who were persecuted before the, the ban was lifted in the uk but to mm. the people who had been in those concentration camps and that was just put out there as if that's fine and i that's wrote a intellectually dishonest it's, it's, it's horrible and i wrote a series of like very polite but um uh forthright i'd say but but but, but polite i wasn't like being shitty to him tweets about it and there was just no response from either pink news or this journalist in, in, in question and people got more and more angry about it and then people started saying like i don't know this guy's got shit for brains or something and then those were retweeted Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Non-linear warfare. <laughs> yeah, those are retweeted as being the trolls. There's no engagement with the rest of the community and yeah. with, the, with the more radical positions until they are then seen as you know being um, being like offensive and trolling. And then and yeah. so that, that, that's the, this 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 model exists within yeah. And I mean you're within, within, within those those things, but it's just it's such a smaller. Uh, microcosm that is so obvious to see it and you can also see the massive discrepancy between you know the right to the the sort of lgbt writers who are um out there producing really really interesting stuff and never ever featuring in any way within within the lgbt media well exactly and you're also seeing the same sort of tactics deployed to make it look as if the labor party's sort of relationship with lgbt rights was one that was sort of non-existent, you know, with sort of old left homophobia and transphobia and misogyny, etc. Uh, mm. You know, being swept away by the kind of wonderful progressive Blair government. And like, to be fair to the Blair government, mm. like their record on LGBT stuff is actually, you know, not terrible. Um, mm. But, you know, the people really putting themselves out against Section 28, for example, were people like Ken Livingston in particular. The ha-ha-ha-hard mm-hmm. left. Yeah, exactly. Like, Diane Abbott, yeah. Uh, people who yeah. were... Jeremy were sort, Corbyn. Yeah, exactly, you know. Um, people who were being sort of demonised as, like, loony left all through the 80s. You know, a lot of the yeah. basis of that... I mean, that famous Tory election poster from Nice 87, where one of the worst things they can imagine is, like, Gay Sports Day... Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I've made several gay sports days now, and they've all been great. You know, I really enjoyed. Them. <laughs> I got a medal for one of them. You know, 
Um, to be honest, that still is that still is my political nightmare in case. I I think though you still see the kind of loony left trope exhibited in that cartoon to this mm-hmm. day, such as when the Labour manifesto came out and, it, and there was this anonymous quote from a Labour MP who I reckon was Graham Iranian Hangman Jones, yeah. Genocide Jones, as he's known in the Labour Whip's office because he <laughs> he goes on so many fully paid for junkets with head chopping despots. Yeah, <laughs> but but no, he he. Well, no, this MP who I have no evidence was Graham Jones. <laughs> it could have been a less kind of like uh, a less kind of pro head chopping MP and maybe a more kind of just relentlessly pro capitalism MP. It could have been Chris Leslie. But anyway, they gave this quote about how um, you know there's something in the manifesto for every special interest group. Yeah. Yeah. And they, you know who they're talking about there. You know they're talking about the thing about re- reforming the Gender Recognition Act and the stuff about racial equality and all, all the stuff in, in there that um, some kind of fusty old person who <laughs> believes in sort of appeasing this imaginary white working class. Yeah. Um, in which you cannot count the non-white working class as having the same or similar class interests. And is just kind of incredibly suspicious of the same stuff um, that the hard left were advocating in the 80s, Many, much of which was taken on almost... Uh, well, watered down a bit, but taken on by the Blair government. And again, actually, John Mann, the right-wing Labour MP, not a Blairite, old Labour right, mm. pro-Brexit and stuff, um, he spoke at the Labour First rally the other day, and he was saying, back in the 80s, the hard left were always kind of distracted with these uh, kind of marginal, fringe, pet projects... And you know what he's talking about with that, don't you? Absolutely. Like that, that that's gay rights. Being yes. that's, that's pro gay rights. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, then, yeah, that's the uh, black sections. Yeah, and there's this total erasure as well between the relationship between the, that activism and the social movements around it um, mm-hmm. on the left, which were just on the left, mm-hmm. on the things that they were fighting against in the mainstream media. You know, the stuff, the sun talking about Brighton being this sort of um, hotbed of queers and AIDS and stuff. Yeah, yeah. That 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 was the campaigning and the activism that that popularized the or, or brought the issues to the table and that allowed people like tony blair to and like you said like blair was was relatively um okay on lgbt stuff and then obviously cameron to totally um i don't know lasso uh, gay rights specifically into the in, into the tory 10 that was that happened because of those people who put up with the years and years of of shit and bullying and violence etc etc and that's now erased and the the discourse around it is you can't do anything about power look what happens when we like you you, you know when it's it's Blair that brought it in, it's Cameron that brought it in. We we were the ones that made the changes, but it wasn't like mm. the, the it's the social movement and this this wider cultural context that was fought for you know tooth and nail to 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 win that over. Mm. Absolutely, God, I hate them. I hate them so fucking much. Oh God, me too. I mean, I really just all of this makes me so angry. And I mean, I guess to yeah. to bring us back round to where we kind of started because you know we've been talking for quite a while now but um you know the the Hari stuff makes me incredibly angry it makes me so angry that there are these media structures that exist that allow him to rehabilitate himself that you know have not really done the sort of the sort of self-questioning 
that really should have been done after. I mean, there was a similar case in the New York Times with a journalist called Jason Blair um, in, I think, the early noughties or possibly even late 90s. Another one called Stephen Glass around about the same time. And yeah, actually, I had a look in that John Ronson book, and I mm. couldn't see a mention of Harry. He might appear briefly, but I think it focuses more um, mainly on Harry's fellow plagiarist, uh, Jonah Lehrer, oh, but yeah. I think also a bit on Jason Blair. Mm. Mm. But, you know, Jason Blair, you know, the New York Times did an 8,000-word public investigation into all of the things that Blair had done. The Independent never did that. I mean, maybe partly yeah. because Independent was still, you know, not very secure of its own position. Hari was one of the very few columnists who'd kind of risen up through the paper. I mean, they had people with you know, bigger name columnists like kind of, I think, Robert Fisk and John Pilger, but, you know, they've made their reputations elsewhere. Mm. They maybe didn't feel secure in kind of, you know, really holding themselves to account on this stuff in a way that probably even The Guardian would have been able to do, you know. But, you know, nonetheless all the things that were in place at the time for him to kind of make his way back into mainstream journalism. You know, I think you and I, we were saying this to each other at the time, that he would be back. Um, And it's just all depressingly predictable, really. And I mean, you can find some good critiques of his particular project, this Lost Connections, which is basically Lost Connections. I haven't read it and I'm not going to read it. But everything I've read about it suggests that, you know, that meme, uh, it's like the worst meme ever. Um where the top picture is like a picture of like a forest and the bottom picture is a picture of some pills and over yeah, the forest yeah. is an antidepressant and over yeah. the pill says this is shit it this sounds like shit. <laughs> um god that's fucking basic yeah i mean really um you know his his argument is from what i've read you know, you should just jack in the pills, jack in the rat race and do what you love. Mm. Um, yeah. Didn't he, he clarify in a tweet recently? He was like, oh, I'm not saying immediately come off your antidepressants <laughs> in a sudden move. Don't do that. <laughs> but obviously he, he must be saying that because some people thought that was what he was originally saying. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, there were lots of people seven years ago now. I know there were lots of people in journalism telling him, look, you should just quit and do something else entirely. Uh, and I find it pretty staggering that he's come back in general. The fact of just him coming back makes you really angry. But the fact that he's come back with a project that could really do quite a lot of people quite a lot of damage if they take yeah. it seriously winds me up even more. I didn't think he could find another way to piss me off. But um, here we are. You know, I think like a lot of people in our circles, you know, I've had horrendous problems with depression and anxiety for pretty much all of my life. Um, and, you know, I've tried doing the things I love and, you know, um have done reasonably well with them i like to think um you know gone to the forest yeah i've gone to the forest i was like boring uh there's nothing here like you know where's the cinema um (laughs) you know gone to the forest everything but the only thing that's actually properly sorted out um particularly my anxiety but also my depression has been you know managed use of antidepressants you know i'm very familiar Mm. with you know critiques of depression and capitalism and like if you're going to read any like read mark fisher don't read fucking hari um, yeah. <laughs> um but you know this this whole thing does make me really angry and like, i know you know i'm very big on structural critiques of the media obviously uh but you know individuals do have agency within that and you know hari really goes far beyond you know someone who's just doing his job or whatever um you know i mean that's another phrase that is often employed very disingenuously but um Mm. 
you know, mm. he has sort of agency and, um, you know, I'm all for forgiveness as well. Um, you know, as we said earlier, maybe, maybe too much so, but, um, you know, if I got the impression that he'd learned his lesson at all, but, you know, there's strong suspicions that he's continuing to like sock puppet on Twitter, uh, under yeah. the name of Austin Blair. Um, why would you pick Blair as your pseudonym? It's incredible. <laughs> but, um, you know, still happening, you know the. It shares it with both another plagiarist, yes, and fucking exactly. mass murdering war criminal, <laughs> <laughs> who he briefly supported in his mass murdering. But um, <laughs> yeah, the best of his policies. <laughs> I mean, it's extraordinary, but you know, he doesn't doesn't really seem to have learned anything, and he hasn't actually gone away and worked his way back up i mean like oh that's why i was going to look up um splintered sunrise earlier it's because he talks about the fact that even boris johnson when he got sacked from the telegraph like even someone as sort of privileged as boris johnson was caught making up a quote the times this is a quote from from the splintered sunrise piece when boris johnson was caught making up a quote the times didn't fart about with two months suspensions boris was summarily sacked had to go and work on the Wolverhampton Express and Star and didn't get back into Fleet Street until he'd learned his lesson. Um, <laughs> he hasn't done that, you know. Um, yeah. He really hasn't. And, you know, if he did um, and gave the impression of learning something from it, then OK, you know, but, but that's not the case. So after the scandal in 2011, a year later he announced that he was writing his first book. Yeah. Which was I don't a think book it's his first book actually, but yeah. Oh, okay. Um Oh, it no, it does say it's his first book on oh. on Wikipedia. Maybe it's more fake news, I don't know. <laughs> but no, uh, he, he definitely did one before. He definitely did one while he was still, before the fall. Okay. Yeah. It says it's um it's called Chasing the Scream: The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. And I remember this coming out because um I you know I I, I like drugs. I don't like them being legalized. Uh, 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 illegal rather, <laughs> but but like you know. So I was like, yeah, I was sympathetic to this. You know, it's not, I'm nodding my head right now. Like when when it came out, but I didn't know much about him. I've learned a lot about Harry from from our conversation today, but. It, again, it wasn't anything I felt like was essential reading because, like, I, you know, I'd bought uh, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. I was like, well, you know, I haven't got time for two weighty tomes on how the war on drugs patently fucking doesn't work. Um, but it seems like a less controversial choice of a comeback than, uh, you know, I think career-wise it probably was a good idea to wait to do this ridiculous fucking mental health book until mm. after the uh, sort of the one that liberal opinion is broadly in tune with, yeah, left of centre opinion. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think there's something also about this new book, and I, I've I've not read it but from the extracts and um, the things I've seen from it, which is this this form of writing as well, which is um, I mean, this is getting onto some sort of more formal critique that as a writer, um, and I'm sure Julia yeah. has opinions about this, would piss us off, but it's it's this sort of um, uh, I got on a plane and flew all the way to Brazil to meet this sort of guy, blah blah blah. Where and then and then just repeats the guy's findings, you know. So there's there's, there's this sort of like a, this narrativization of uh, of the role of the journalist as this sort of yeah going out and hunting these things down, but actually the research has already been done by other people, which I mm. uh, I, I also personally find grating, and I think is 
on a political level. And I think it was also mirrored in, yeah, um, I mean, even as especially some of the LGBT press stuff, like even some of the stuff that's, that's actually good. There's some like, you know, there's uh, some better pieces that have come out in the last couple of years, especially on BuzzFeed. But they really go for this um, entirely needless, um, yeah, ramping up of that sort of uh, adventure and narrative. And I think in, in mm. his, like, there's no... The book could just as well have been written from, you know, an office in North London or or wherever, mm. you know. But he, yeah, that 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 builds into like rebuilding this career uh, profile yeah. as I am a journalist, like, you know. Like read read my process. <laughs> like, exactly, this, yeah, I'm, I'm at the centre of this. Yeah, exactly. That he's that he's now turning into some sort of like a war reporter or something. I don't know. I yeah, which he's done before, you know. Uh, yeah, I just said here, he, just, he did write a book in 1999, God Save the Queen, okay. Monarchy in the Press about the Windsors. Oh, wow, okay. What you, I mean, uh, is that meant two, to be? Two and a half stars on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, you know, maybe there's a reason he wants to call his War on Drugs book his first book then. He's, he's happy to let Wikipedia, um, you know, traffic that particular disinformation. Maybe he yeah, for once film. he's happy to not edit Wikipedia to build himself up. So, you know, first time for everything, I guess. Maybe it's a tacit admission that he didn't actually write the first book. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like some stuff he found in Antonio Negri's bin. <laughs> just like, oh, his lesser work on the British royal family. Yeah, this is, this is, this'll do. <laughs> Definitely pass this off as my own. Did Antonio Negri kill Princess Diana? That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> he was in um, Paris at the time, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I was going to try and come up with some joke about them changing the laws in 2002, but it was just too complex and arcane a historical reference <laughs> to <laughs> laws on the pardon of, pardons of former Italian uh, left-wing paramilitaries. <laughs> um... <laughs> You you wrote in your notes that we should ask questions about Elton John's friendship and support for Harry. I yeah, I'll say this: it was part of the uh, rehabil- the first step of rehabilitation for for Harry was a Huffington Post uh, article mm-hmm. that was co-authored uh, about uh, AIDS, I think, which was co-authored between Elton John and Johan Harry, and that was his first what? step back into well, Harvey, journalism. Harvey also worked on the Trues, didn't he? During that sort of that absolutely oh, desperate oh, period. God. The 2015 election, where the best thing that was going on in sort of mainstream left representation was Russell Brand. And it was widely reported that Johan Hari was writing Russell Brand's comment pieces for The Guardian. Um, One of them did reference um, Johan Hari, and the only person that would reference Johan Hari was Johan Hari. Um, <laughs> maybe people read them and they were just like, hang on, I recognise this passage from my bookie work. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, but, you know, when, when both of these Hari books came out, The Guardian have either published long extracts or interviews with Hari where, you know, which are just like attempts for him to rehabilitate himself. They're not the mm. either. Like Open Democracy have published him several times. The Statesman published him, and you know people just shouldn't. And it's just it's a real it is a real indictment of this stuff on a structural level that people people are letting him back in when you know they all know full well that he hasn't really done the things that he should do in order to you know get that sort of 
second chance. And like Hugh says, there are a lot of other voices who, for whatever reason, either never get a chance at all or just sort of fall by the wayside or don't feel supported by their editors or whatever, um, who end up kind of leaving this stuff. And, you know, a lot of those voices, you know, even the first time round would have been worth an awful lot more. And, you know, especially would be now. Um, he's yeah. come back with with a book which has just been widely and kind of roundly criticised by people like Dean Burnett in The Guardian. Uh, there's a good thread by someone called Stuart J. Ritchie on Twitter about a lot of the problems with the book. You know, uh, Will Davis has been very critical of it as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I really think that, you know, the Hari, the Hari story from start to finish just reflects incredibly badly on the whole industry. And it, it just makes me incredibly angry. But I mean... I guess I would say, you know, in kind of conclusion, I do find it encouraging that there are there are lots of alternative sources of, you know, analysis, left kind of writing. You know, I'm particularly encouraged by, you know, growth of Navarra uh, and also the kind of, you know, rise of the new socialist, um, the new humanist. You're doing a lot of interesting stuff kind of culturally. Um, you know, there are kind of alternative outlets to these places now, and it's not like it was... Uh, when I first came to this stuff in the early noughties. And, you know, I think if these mainstream media outlets continue using the kind of tactics, you know, the sort of non-linear warfare that Joe Kennedy talks mm. about, I think all they're going to do is just screen themselves into irrelevance, actually. Um, you know, you've seen The Guardian after the 2017 general election. You know, I was saying earlier that The Guardian is at least big enough to, um, you know, incorporate a wider range of perspectives. And you have seen them be a bit more accommodating to the Corbyn project. I mean, you know, with very, very obvious limits, but, um, mm. you know, nonetheless, uh, supportive voices have been given a bit more room, I think. Um, although some of them have been kind of leaving as well. Um, yeah. But, you know, you haven't seen that in, in certain other places. Um, and you... No, definitely not. I mean, I haven't really read The Statesman for a few years now, but... Um, mm. You know, I I had a look through it the other day, um, just to prepare for this, and uh, couldn't find the um, couldn't find any evidence of it kind of rethinking its editorial policy in line yeah. with what happened in the election. It's fair to say. Not at all. Um, so so you know, I think I think these people have have two options. Like one is to just think harder about their editorial processes. Um, or the other is to carry on as they are and see where it gets them. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I don't think it's going to get them very far. Yeah. For me, I think, I, think my, my, I mean, we didn't, really, we didn't really cover it so much on this, but for me, I think it's a, all these things that we're talking about are the result of a structural problem with the way that the press uh, has evolved and is organised and recruits. Um, uh, the the, the it's just still so dominated by this Oxbridge mentality. And part of this is an economic thing. You know, in the past, there used to be um, a lot more sort of trade union correspondents and North of England correspondents, etc. that would draw people in. Uh, it paid better, which was, you know, so for younger writers, they could afford to sort of, um, it could allow a slightly broader uh, group in. Like, it's never been good, let's face it, but it's definitely got worse, mm. I think, in the last 10 years. And now um, I, I can't find the statistic, unfortunately. I was looking for it, but I did read somewhere that uh, I think this is probably five years ago now. But the 
comment section on the Guardian, which I have to say is one of the worst for this Oxbridge link. More than 50% of their um, commentators went to either Oxford or Cambridge. I mean, it's just not covering the country. It's not covering society. There's, you know, in terms of like, it's just, it's still like extremely uh, white. Um, and as a result, it's just not reflecting society, which is, which is why we're getting into these like, you know, so much of the um, uh, coverage of it is like, how did we not see this coming? You know, yeah. like, like it's this self-reflexive aspect of the press these days, which is, uh, yeah, like after an election, after a shock of some sort or another, after Corbyn was elected and then won again after the coup, you know, after the, this growth in the Labour Party, this question is like, why did we not see this coming? And it's like the reason you didn't see this coming is because it's such a tiny demographic of society which you're circulating in and representing. And I understand mm. that, like, the nature of these sort of jobs, and I say this, like, fully being part of my own circle, is to do with friendship. You know, like, the reason I'm on this programme now is that I'm friends with Juliet because we've got a, sh a shared politics. Um, we're, you know, interested in, this, in similar stuff. We've got a, a shared sense of humour, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, of course, like, mm. people will invite friends on or, you know, will work in, in those sort of um, uh, friendship circles. But it it just needs to be blasted open with um, like a real uh, rethink of the purpose of the press and uh, the way that structurally it allows people who are otherwise shut out. And that's partly economics and it's partly paying on. It's partly, yeah, you know, recruiting um, more journalists from, you know, um, of colour and uh, more queer journalists, et cetera, et cetera. But, but yeah, but partly it's a, just a sort of cultural thing, um, like it's a question of affect almost, you know, like that, that it should change its position or its, its understanding of what its position is within society. And that it should recognise at the very least that it is a small subset of society that doesn't represent uh, as, as a commentariat the actual opinions of, you know, um, the, the entire of British society, which is mainly left out without a voice. And as a result... When you give the, the, the people a voice who don't have a voice and they, you know, you give them Twitter or people start to use Twitter, the response is to scream and shout and to use all this language, which is like seemingly totally inappropriate and doesn't fit into like the sort of way that they people understand political language can be. And, you know, to accept hecklers, et cetera, et cetera. This is this is a result of that same that same um, shrinking uh, de demographic of what the who the media are. And just yeah. to um, add a point onto that that I just really want to um, want to put in is that another thing that needs to happen is a lot of these people, you know, they really are not aware of their own sort of privilege and their own kind of background. And it feeds into an ongoing problem from there, which is that a lot of these people see themselves as impartial observers of yeah. the political culture and they're not. They're agents within it. Um, yeah, they they, they they see themselves, uh, yeah, exactly, as passive observers rather than active participants with agency in the political I mean, process. the one person at the New Statesman who is genuinely popular with people on the, the sort of Corbyn-supporting left Labour movement is Stephen Bush, who is quite upfront. Yeah. you know, like, yeah. I think he might even describe himself as a Blairite, and there are only, like, yeah. five Blairites in 1997, you know. <laughs> like, but they were. I mean, they're a very small group, and, you know, they just had control of the party. But, um, you know, he's quite upfront saying, look, this is where my politics are. This is what I believe. But from there, I'm going to just, like, talk to people on the ground, listen to people, and try and work out what's going on, investigate into it, and report back to you, which is what journalists should be doing. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, 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 he was one of the few who was never sniffy about 
uh, really sniffy about the like the potential of, of Corbyn and the potential mm-hmm. of Corbyn to reactivate people because he understood that there was a, a a demographic out there which you know would would uh, lap up uh, socialist policies. I think he predicted early on that Corbyn was going to win the 2015 leadership yeah. election, whereas other kind of centre-leaning journalists were all sort of... They had this kind of fantasy scenario that, no, you know, the way that Corbyn, um, that Corbyn is able to, like, stir up this massive amount of enthusiasm among this kind of new political base for the Labour Party. Um, Yvette Cooper will be able to do that in a couple of weeks. Just give her campaign some time, man. This is this is very and it's very similar to what was uh, this thing in, in Haringey and the way this is being pitched as this neutral position against and and the the, the leader of um, Haringey Council uh, used this phrase um, that she uh, she's about the the politics of pragmatism and not the politics <laughs> of ideology, which is which is the most ideological phrase I could, you can possibly imagine like the politics of ideology otherwise known as politics. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean- but I, I think that's a ge- that's a genuine, you know, almost like deep intrinsic biopolitical statement they believe about themselves that that they're not yeah. engaged in ideology. And I think it's the same with a lot of the, the what the sort of centrist press is. They they they're not being facetious. They genuinely think of themselves as the normal rational actors in yeah, society, yeah. and everyone else as the irrational or in their their, fra- their phrases, you know, crazy or mad, you know. Uh, or, or um, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> great show uh, and mental so, so, so illness the starting point would just be the admission as as like Juliet said with Stephen Bush the admission that they are also coming from a political position would be the you yeah know. I mean John McTernan's realized this recently as well and again I, I still you know disagree with almost everything that John McTernan has to say but you know he yeah, went yes. on the um the All the Best podcast with Matt Zarb Cousin and Max Shanley. And, you know, again, he at least, you know, gives them the sort of credit of like listening to their arguments, responding to it and having a sort of a reasonable discussion. And like the centrists sort of say they want debate and that sort of debate I'm fine with. You know, we might people on the left might learn something. People in the centre might learn something from those sorts of discussions. But for the most part, as Joe Joe points out, and as we keep referring to, you know, these people say they want debate, but the way they behave does the opposite of doing that. They they claim they want a debate, but they kind of, you know, when somebody like Corbyn, whose very existence is a repudiation of their political outlook, Mm -hmm. arises, you know, arrives on the scene, then they kind of... um, you know, they, they they just sort of freeze up. They just get indignant and say, no, 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 uh, no uh, terrorism. He supports terror. No, he can't be in our discourse. The last thing I read in the Statesman, I think, was their statement of support for Yvette Cooper in the first leadership campaign. Yeah. <laughs> and it was about 1,500 words, maybe slightly shorter, but definitely over 1,000. But I remember it had 114 words on Yvette Cooper. Uh, and all of the rest of it was about... <laughs> And, you know, their case for Yvette Cooper was that she'd been in government. She'd opposed the Conservatives, quote, fiscal dogmatism. And there was no unpacking of that. Uh, and she's a woman. And like that was it. Um, it's, it's weird because I, I, I couldn't find their endorsement of Diane Abbott from 2010. No, it's like, weird. Obviously... <laughs> <laughs> Could go on forever with We've this stuff. <laughs> You know, I think this might have to be a two-part episode or something. I think so, so yeah. <laughs> Our first three-hour episode. 
I think at, at the end it comes down to an incredibly narrow uh, selection of people yeah. pushing an incredibly narrow conception of politics. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, and you know, I found with my experience, you know, I mean, I am I'm pretty solidly middle class. Like I wouldn't deny that for a second. Um, but you know, I went to I briefly went to a private school. I was there from like 10 until 12 and then left because just my family ran out of money. We just couldn't afford it and went to a comprehensive and then went to Manchester University and then Sussex. So, you know, I occupy a level of privilege that, you know, is well ahead of a lot of other people in the population. You know, I wouldn't deny that for a second, but it's nothing like what a lot of the media class are. Um, and it's certainly not the same social circles, you know, because I think this stuff... You know, Oxford in particular, weirdly Oxford far more than Cambridge, as far as I can tell, although, you know, Johan Hari was Cambridge. Mm. A lot of it goes back even further than that. It's school groups, you know. Um, yeah. I love the tweet that someone said, you know, talking about like Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg and people like that and saying that, you know, if people like that had come out of his school, they'd be on special measures, you know. Uh, mm. My school was on special measures for a while after a pupil got stabbed, you know. Uh, I'm pretty sure that wasn't wasn't happening at Eton. It was, it was you know, too many crumpets toasted on people's butts. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Preparation <laughs> club, but yeah. Um... Just had some image of Seb Payne's face <laughs> and like some horrible contortion right now. Yeah, well, well maybe we should praise cash to compensate. <laughs> But, uh... <laughs> great guy but um even i found myself feeling like a real outsider in these sorts of circles um you know both in person and just on the page and ultimately it just became too kind of exhausting uh you know i wasn't sort of you know i was very rarely explicitly censored hardly at all in fact but you know i just sort of felt you know a sort of marginalization and a sort of just, just sense that this wasn't really for me uh and you know it's got to the point where i just felt like ground down by it and um and you know had to just sort of stop doing it and i know i'm not the only one um and i don't think that's going to change until we get more diverse not just like journalists but editors um because yeah. that's really yeah. where the problem is well <laughs> i think i think we should end this on a note of major structural reform yeah, yeah. <laughs> um major structural reform but also working outside of these structures you know yeah um, structural just, revolution just, just being critical of these structures yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, for three fucking hours if it if it needs to be <laughs> yeah it's been a long old show <laughs> you're, you're really saying good three though. hours but me, me and GDF have probably spent about 500 hours in our, of our life yeah. having this conversation mm. so we've uh, <laughs> we've narrowed it down to the important stuff yeah, uh, a lot. A lot of this, I feel, was was kind of topics we we sort of touched on at various points on the show. But I think that this has definitely been one of our most. I don't know for me, like intellectually stimulating shows. Um, probably yeah, probably ever. I mean, especially like our last few have have been not not really any guests, just kind of like the four of us just kind of making stupid jokes for for generally well over an hour <laughs> i love those though i really enjoy them um the the first half of the fake news awards uh, i found an absolute delight yeah. uh, <laughs> your response to dr radfem being suspended by the uk labour party is just absolutely one of my favorite things i've heard for for a very long time 
<laughs> oh, thank you. What what was it like? You put on celebrate good times. Well, that the uh... bit where um, I can't remember. I think it might be Tom Foster. Just like reads her tweets. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's Tom. Oh, like you know, I believe in Jeremy Corbyn. Heart emoji, rose emoji. I believe in Thorn Green. Heart emoji, rose emoji. Today I was suspended from UK Labour. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's one of my favourite moments of our our lesbian episodes. (laughs) Just ah, delightful. But but yeah, um, speaking of delightful, like it's been it's been great to have you both on the show. It's been a pleasure. Um, like I said, sorry, it's it's been so much of me. I hope it's not too much. But, um... oh, oh, good. That's what we wanted. Yeah, last few episodes have been too much of us. Oh. <laughs> yeah, everyone, everyone's bored of us now. They want to listen to somebody actually talk about something, not just make hit <laughs> jokes about. <laughs> I do. I do think on a on a ser- serious note. Oh well, again another n- another serious note. That actually though, it is um, it is um, podcasts like this and like these alternative things, like these alternative media that's popped up that has been like so useful in like um, spreading political discussion. It's outside that previously have never found a platform to have that discussion. Like I, I quite often think like if I I could go back. And, you know, I was sort of 15, 16 again. What would I be listening to? Because at the time, right, I was reading Johan Hari articles. And that's that was, <laughs> you know, so that was my political education. And to see now that younger people can like have this access to like uh, a lot more of that political discourse. And then just generally, you know, as just generally, it's like th- there are challenges that co- are coming from this sort of stuff. Like I don't agree with everything they do by a long way. But I remember when Navarra started and it being... Um, you know, extremely on the margins and seen as like really sort of a, a sort of silly, you know, hobbyist type organization almost on the yeah. ultra left or whatever. And now, you know, it's, you know, people, you know, John McTurnan will go on there not because for, for a favor, but because he knows that that's like a, an area of political, um, like struggle in terms of communication and spreading his message. And, you know, that people mm. like, uh, like, Aaron and Ash are regularly invited onto mainstream news channels mm-hmm. to give this opinion that they that that opinion would just not have been heard if it wasn't for these like these like new star um, new starting alternative uh, political podcasts like this. So yeah, maybe in uh, maybe in five years <laughs> you will all be on Newsnight. I think I think New Socialist is a, is a good example of this because yeah. actually in a year they've built what is an incredible resource for people looking for yeah. leftist discourse out of nowhere like they created it out of nothing historically libcom was obviously like really important for that as well yeah and yeah, um, and yeah there's some, obviously there, that's where perhaps some of the yeah, more yeah, libcom and working class theory stuff is happening yeah but, um, but I think the the important thing about all these new media outlets is that as a kind of baseline to the arguments they make, they reject the terms of debate that both the right and the centre yeah, argue absolutely. on. So it's, you know, we, we don't even give... If you tune into real politic, you just know that we're not going to spend a load of time, like, agonising over, like, I don't know, electability or, like, the single market or whatever the new kind of the dominant anti-left attack line is because mm. it's just it's not the reality we inhabit and i think it's an important thing that it, i don't think this is an e- 
echo chamber, just yeah, just a kind of echo chamber as it's often accused of being. But I think it is important that people see the reality they inhabit reflected back to them in the media they consume. Yeah, and I mean, I think you know there there is a place for debate if it's done you know in good faith. Like I said, you know, I sort of listened to to Matt's our cousin and Matt Shanley talking to um to John McTurnan. Um, and I think, well, okay, you know, we maybe both sides can learn something from this. But, um, mm. you know, I also think there's a place I find it much more interesting to, you know, get together. Like when I do the, the radio show, when I do Sweet 212 on, on Resonance, I find it much more interesting to get together people who are broadly on the same page with things and have a sort of exploratory discussion. I mean, you mentioned earlier the the show we did about the Russian Revolution. I had Owen Hathley um, and then two like Russian writers, Ilya Rogotschavy and Maria Chehanadsky. Uh, yeah. And, you know, we all sort of know Soviet political and cultural history like reasonably well. And we can have a sort of, you know, I like to think sort of fairly interesting and intelligent discussion um, mm. without someone going, but Stalin killed millions of people. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, why yeah, yeah. Um, that's not a particularly interesting addition to this discussion. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I like. I think it, it took until uh, until Corbyn to, you know, I. The, the weird thing is, I I readily describe myself as a communist prior to Corbyn, Say. but I think, but I think I'm much more left wing now, and mm. and it, it and it's not, <laughs> it's not that I like have like repudiated uh, calling myself a communist in this in that time. I've ju- I've just kind of become basically Jeremy Corbyn happened as soon as I left university. Right, right. So for three years prior to that. I was sort of kind of developing my politics basically completely on my own mm. because I wasn't interested in the Labour Party. I, um, you know, I wasn't interested in the fucking SWP because I could Google Comrade Delta. I did, you know, I, I wasn't interested in, in the sort of like far left groups. I wasn't interested in the Greens because, you know, I just felt they were small time compared to Labour and I didn't, <laughs> didn't want to be concerned with that. But, um, so instead, I had to basically just, like, read a bit of liberal stuff in The Guardian, read a, like, communist book I'd buy myself, and have this all, this shit all kind of jumbled together in mm-hmm. in my head as I tried to, you know, struggle in the dark to find a political perspective, while with my friends at university having to have arguments on the level of, is it okay to call people fags? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and and yeah. So I I think that with the growth of new left media and a viable electoral left, there has been a kind of political grounding for people. So they don't they don't need as much to be, unless they are just reading the Guardian every day and getting frustrated by why haven't they seen the light yet? Which was the first few months of Jeremy Corbyn for me. Why do they still not like him? And like you know, then then I think they maybe are going to uh, find their way to a kind of coherent left perspective a bit easier. I don't know if that might have been perversely incoherent. No, no, I mean, that all makes sense, and it really chimes with my experiences. I mean, I'm quite a bit older than you, I think, because I'm 36. Um, But, you know, I graduated in 2003, and, you know, I was suspicious of Blair from the off. Uh, you know, mm. I was lucky enough to grow up with the very, very tail end of at least like Channel 4 being interesting. So I always had things like the Mark Thomas product. 
um, which still quite funny to be fair. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've watched a bit of it on YouTube, and it's it's not bad. No, no, I mean, it was just it was really interesting as well. He would sort of highlight a lot of things that you know, as a teenager in a a small town in uh, in Surrey, you know, I would have no idea what was going on, uh, mm. and you know, I had no at that point at that age. It was very hard to find even just the idea of class consciousness. You know, I grew up in like a daily yeah. household, um, and you know, just other political parties besides the Tories just weren't on the map really, even in 1997. You know, um, but I had a similar experience with the Labour Party over a much longer period of time. Um, I did actually get involved with the Greens because I lived in Central Brighton, and you know. Um, when there was the prospect of Caroline Lucas winning, um, mm. you know, particularly at that time, so 2010, it really was just like absolutely desperate in terms of the Labour Party. I mean, that project was dead <laughs> on its feet. Um, yeah. As Aaron Bassani said, Navarra, you know, Gordon Brown polled like 28 percent in yeah. 10. And, you know, they got absolutely smashed. But mm. because they were advancing a politics of the establishment, it wasn't framed like that. But I think in various elections, since 2001 i've either not voted or i voted green or i voted for things like the socialist labor party or the national health alliance and i think in 2015 mm. i voted for the communist league because i just couldn't bring myself to yeah. vote <laughs> even though i liked Brian abbott um yeah and i voted labor every election since corbyn got in including for sadiq khan who's policy yeah quite a long way to the right of mine um, oh he's a complete prick I'm not <laughs> but yeah um <laughs> You know, I've I've been able to do that because for the first time in my life, it's felt like there's been a political project substantively bigger than myself that I would be prepared to get involved in. I mean, joining the Labour Party, you know, felt really weird for me, even after Corbyn won, which is when I joined. You know, I thought back to 2003 in particular. I just thought, fuck, I'm joining this party. If you said that to me (laughs) when I was 21, I probably would have hit you, you know. Um, (laughs) thug, but um, (laughs) uh, I haven't joined the Mentum actually. But um, the SWP just didn't appeal to me either. Um, Can't think why. No, it's weird, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) Much I would love to spend such a day handing out their newspapers outside Kingston Shopping Centre. (laughs) Such an appealing party. It looks like (laughs) such great fun. Not not at all with just reputational poison. The minute you you join them. Yeah, (laughs) we've got newspapers and sexual assault and. Yeah, just, just no, really... it's just those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really clap Trotskyism. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. Similarly, Laura, you you were uh, an anarchist, weren't you? An anarcho-communist, and you didn't vote yeah. prior to I think yeah, twenty seventeen was the first time that I. Mm. Even then, I sort of I felt like I had to do it through gritted teeth. Um, yeah. Because your MP's yeah. a melt, isn't she? Yeah, my MP's a fucking melt. Um, but <laughs> like he was saying, like if you'd have said to me, even maybe in 2016, that I'd actually, I'd, I'd go to the polling booth and put a little cross next to like Labour, even though I've been a party member since I was about 16, I'd have been like, no chance. I'm not, like, there's no chance I'm going to do that. <laughs> but that that isn't an interesting thing though that you were a member that you didn't vote for them yeah because it was the other way around for me i voted for them in 2015 but i just d- couldn't see the party as something like to get involved with yeah i think it's maybe just 
more because of sort of like where I'm from and attitudes towards politics um Mm. In, in the in the community that I grew up in, which was always just you join the Labour Party, you just do it like you don't know anything about politics. You don't vote. You don't. Who gives a fuck? Just join the Labour Party. It's it's what everyone. Yeah. And it probably came from more like that. But also, you know, when I was like a teenager, I was involved a lot in um uh, in the RCG and FRFI, which obviously aren't good anymore. But when I was 13, it was for fine. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's it's obviously not good or fashionable to say that you were part of these organisations anymore, but I was. And um, yeah, but like thirteen-year-old Laura's not complicit in any of the bad yeah. shit they do. <laughs> like it's cool. Yeah, you it would be a bit wild to try and accuse me of. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, obviously, like their lines are. You know, we do whatever we can to to bolster left politics, but you don't vote Labour because Labour's just the same as the Tories. And I think that was, mm. I think I I basically sort of had that in my mind up until, you know, the Corbyn project was on its feet. Um, mm. As much as I, I, I voted for Corbyn in the first leadership election um, back in 2015. But even Put then... Put Smith in the second one. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't allowed to vote in the second one because I wasn't a member of the right. Labour Party. <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> compliance. Well, I just, like, I got fucked by compliance. <laughs> negotiate with ISIS. Um... <laughs> <laughs> that was my favourite Owen Smith policy. <laughs> yeah. Get the ISIS lads round the table. You had the non-linear warfare trying to like smear Corbyn as a terrorist for a fucking year, and then like, Owen Smith is just like, yeah, I'd negotiate with ISIS. Make salad on Spotify with ISIS. Yeah. Well, because he was like, well, you know, you know, I'm Owen Smith. I sorted out the Northern Irish peace process, so I could negotiate with ISIS easily. To be fair, I think it's pretty ice cream negotiation tactic. Maybe that should have been a slogan: ice cream for ISIS. Like, <laughs> I think I would have actually voted for him if he'd come out with that slogan. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm here for this new movement in the Labour Party. Critical support for ISIS. Hell yeah. <laughs> so, Laura, what were you saying about your uh, political journey before we wrap this up? I've got no idea. <laughs> I'm sorry, I fucking I derailed got, what you were saying. I've got no idea you? and I don't think it matters anymore. I'm still a communist. So. <laughs> <laughs> I derailed you with the Owen Smith jibe. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite bit of the Owen Smith uh, campaign was when he said that he, um, to win his wife, he had to beat off a hundred men. <laughs> <laughs> That's a policy. I'll, I'll, I'll vote for a Labour leader who's beaten off a hundred men. <laughs> Everyone on the left has their favorite Owen Smith gaff. Like there's something that hit the spot yeah. for everyone. For me, it's just—it's so funny. Um... I did at some fucking dickhead who was talking about the hard left with their macchiatos or whatever the fuck that type of coffee is called. Like, you know, I'm just like, what is your beef with coffee? And they didn't reply. <laughs> well, can't one of them just say in plain fucking English one day what is the actual problem with coffee that they have? <laughs> why? Why Please. do we do this? It's like every like three months on the dock. Somebody has to say something weirdly aggressive and classist about coffee. 
<laughs> Leave coffee alone. And then like, Twitter does this whole thing of like a period of two weeks where like we discuss like what h- how coffee is is drunk in in various places throughout Europe and how it's actually working class. And then someone will chime in and they'll say, but no, using a cafetiere that is middle class. That's definitely the line. That's definitely the line. And someone else will come back and we'll have a fucking aneurysm about that and I, I just don't understand what it is about this debate that means it's just destined to return and resurface and there's a just awful way just like every few months we just nothing we can do <laughs> will allow us to escape from the fucking awful coffee debate don't mess with me pork chop <sighs> what day is this it's february 2nd groundhog day what is the deal with coffee somebody please tell me well, the thing about coffee is it really uh, heats up tensions. Hey. <laughs> we can edit that bit out. It's fine. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna keep that in. I mean, yeah, my my yeah, my yeah, shit yeah, jokes yeah. are are yeah. an important part of this show. Yeah, cut out the three three hours and twenty minutes that led up to that, and just have that. <laughs> <laughs> We've got, we've got Juliet Jackson who let me on the show today and then I just cut straight to Jack's fucking shit that'll where it heats up the <laughs> <laughs> And then I can do my Amazon Moon and Gagwa joke oh, as an God. encore. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think you've been listening to <laughs> the the Real Politic Podcast with me, Jack Frayne Reed. With my my co-host Laura Jolly and Tid, I'll do, and and with our special guests Hugh Lemmy, hello, and Juliet Jakes. Um, just just where can everybody read or listen to you two? Um, I have a website which is just JulietJakes.com. Um, everything I publish uh, or whatever is up there, including your your radio show. Yeah, you can find links to that in the uh, audiovisual section. Yeah. It's a very, very good show. Check it out. The episode on cultural democracy is highly recommended. And Hugh, what about your work? Uh, yeah, um, you can read my um, last book, which is um, um, <laughs> which is um, uh, um... Juliet. You can explain it. Chubbs, uh, <laughs> the demonization yeah, of my work. It's it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pornographic slash fiction about Owen Jones. Brilliant. <laughs> my my new yeah we've got a new book coming out this year which is called um red tory my corbin ken sex hell (laughs) 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 which uh which will be of interest to your readers i hope so yeah that sounds fucking great can you send real politic a press copy of this Uh, yeah i'll get them to send you a press copy yeah Please, please, please. We got a press copy of Alex Nunn's new edition of The Candidate. We're, like, big time now. Nice. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've got to say, Hugh, your your books sound excellent. <laughs> Juliet, I can, I can confirm that your radio show and a lot of your writing is excellent well, as well. I say, actually, with regards to Hugh's books, um, when I wrote Trans Memoir, I had to write the final draft in this... Uh, real um sort of frantic sort of five or six month period to um to meet a deadline that had already moved back mm-hmm. um so i sort of cracked the voice and i didn't really want to read any other narratives over that whole time because i didn't really want anything to sort of interfere with the voice that i'd um 
yeah. I was established. I was just writing like a thousand words a day, six days a week. And the only novel I read in that whole six months was Chubbs, the demonization of my work. <laughs> <laughs> regrets quite frankly what, read- what is sorry what what's the sub subheading of the book like the demonization of my, my working ass my working ass i thought i thought it was that i just wanted to confirm <laughs> <laughs> oh, <Check God>. um. <laughs> okay thanks so much both of you for appearing on real politic for this uh incredible double bill of episodes yeah right yeah. Uh, this it's been, it's been a great time. Yeah, it's been a really good talk. It's been good to at least critically examine some of the media that we consume, especially for people like me and Jack, who are maybe going to end up in that mess or could have ended up <sighs> in that mess as as like young writers. And it's always mm. it's always a bit... I don't quite know what the word is, but it's always enlightening to see how it looks like from people that have that have gone through it and have, and have seen quite how just awful these structures really can be yeah and i did want to give something of an insider take on it i mean you know yeah. i was always, like i said fairly marginal to it in a lot of ways but you know like i said i think a lot of you know when i did used to get attacked by people on the sort of radical left i think it was often sort of done with the assumption that i had like uncritically gone into the media yeah um, because so many journalists, like I said, just don't reflect on their own practices. There was an assumption yeah. that they did. Um, and, you know, I hope this is, uh, you know, helpful or at least of interest to people, you know. Um, I would do it again, actually. Um, I would do it again, actually. Um, despite everything, I would do it again. Yeah. OK, well... Um that's fair well speaking of doing stuff again <laughs> as you write a lot as you write a lot about film um maybe you could come on to discuss some cinema sometime that'd be nice yeah um yeah and yes definitely and at some point an interview between myself and Juliet. obviously me doing the interview because she's more interesting than me um like it will be appearing in the online pages of the new socialist yeah so Look out for that. Cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. Thanks, thanks for having you. us. Oh no problem. It's been really fun. Yeah, Keep man. Thanks for up. thanks for talking. It's been yeah, it's been great. Interesting and really like enlightening. And keep up the good work with the um yeah. the, the shows as well. You know, always enjoy them. They're, uh, oh, they're a lot of fun to listen to. Um, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs> So many dark arts to choose You can focus to the phobias of all before you use Whether you levitate a bent spoon Tune it to the prudence of the dark heart news Breathing's a tug of war Wet when I rush the ball Plus 29 bus gum stuck clutched the door Slumped in the back burn bush by the sun of George Sweat tearing feet cause I don't bleed when I cut no more I'm a god to meet you to brawl crops So my bobble is a pot of comps clipped and collage Path warps, bad dogs, parry mass spells I don't speak the language but my last laugh's hell Viral get vertigo, signals the flash and beat Hosting my head from myself to get back to me Pouch full of dynamite, glass cap anatomy Bags full of smelling salts, mad as the magazine attack Medic, stretcher, core, crack, crazy, header, fall, threat A break, a mistake with a post, picking every last fucking piece of pain off the wall Okay, the 
corner, grow to be notably mobile and social go for two normals or any scene where Bree is normal. He will locate every exit in seconds to flee the wormhole. When emergency diversions ring the celly or the doorbell. Burning in both ends, friends, let's commiserate. Turning into something to the sound that the triggers make. Born at the baddest sign, at this time still away. Training all my zeros to perform like they're figurates. <laughs> So we hear the walk planks, then we'll climb a tree and wait. For irony is waiting over piety and faith. So when it goes through ruminations, so they're kindly disobeyed. And I will live to be a thousand with the patience of a saint. To see the hoi polloi becoming restless in her tanks. Can't hold house and corrals with a key. So what a worm's please shriek on a count of three. Time I couldn't sleep, I could buy a million locks and finally read a book in peace. No more with my president, come off as a crooked thief and turn my heart so dark that it would bark when he looked for me. Sideways, I want a sinister boundary. Panel of contemporaries killing me loudly. 99 models of fear on the wall, timorous. Done running kids to the car on the lawn, cinder block. <laughs> Whether you levitate a best clothes. Whether you levitate a best clothes. Whether you levitate a best clothes. It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.